What is Waiter? Waiter is a restaurant platform where you as a consumer can get awesome local restaurants, deliver your carryout. So, it's pretty cool. Sorry, is it like Postmates or yeah. do I not? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Like Postmates, DoorDash, Grubhub. Okay. Yeah. yeah, only a lot better. But, but. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I've been to Red Rabbit, I love it. Actually. Thank you very much. Yeah, I was in there the other day. Um, so, a restaurant is a hard business to be in. I decided to do it, and Have I had to raise. No, never opened a restaurant before. This is last September. This was uh, September of 2011. Okay. And what happened was, in September, I had to raise roughly a few hundred thousand dollars to kick this event off, or kick this business off. And we had set a date to open by February 11th. No, February 1. February 1 of 2012. That's the date we self-imposed. And so by uh, October 30th, I had raised $15,000 of a few hundred thousand. Because if you remember, it was a recession at the time. Nobody wanted to invest in anything. No one had any money or their tight, tight wallets. And I'm a no, yeah, no track record. So all my pitches are falling on deaf ears. And by the way, I was leaving to Antarctica for a month the next day. Oh. Right. So, with this guy right there, ironically. So, I get on a plane with, you know, my, my name on the line for this business, and $15,000 committed from one of my past investors who invested in another company I did that failed. <laughs> he must love me. And um, went to Antarctica, where there's no internet and, you know, nothing. So, we were there for a month. Definitely no capital. Yeah, no capital. <laughs> Got home, and then, then you get home in December, and there's the Christmas time, right? It's supposed to open in February. So I got home, but I just kind of said, I don't care. We're going to do this. I'm going to find the money. We're going to figure it out. And, you know, Paragary's looking at me like, yeah, this is on you. And uh, I just kept pitching, and then finally I ended up, like, in the 11th hour, came across a guy who was having a beer with me at Bar West. He goes, hey, that investment thing you pitched me for... Is that still available? And I went, uh, not very much. <laughs> you know, I could maybe make some room for you. And so we're sitting there, and he goes, well, you know, I, I wanted it all. And I'm like, well, as it turns out, it's all available. <laughs> so, um, he took it down. He took it down. And uh, I funded the thing. So that was a huge obstacle. So that's uh, all you got to do, just hang out. And who were you so, doing yeah. the pitches to? Just anywhere you went? Anywhere yeah, you, went? you know, angels, wealthy individuals. This, yeah. is for, this is for the bar or for requested? This is for the bar. She just asked me about Red Rabbit. All right. Yeah, you're talking about Red Rabbit, right? Right. So that was, that was definitely a big hurdle. And then, um, you know, the other hurdle is naming the place. That was actually probably the number one hurdle was getting the name. It was a really friction-based experience. How'd you get Red Rabbit? It's a really long story, but short story, uh, it, it was my wife who thought of it. 
she yeah she was uh, yeah she thought of it. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Uh, yeah, that was it. What's that? We were gonna call it Sunnies. We were gonna call. I was gonna call it Church. That was the name I thought was cool. No, church. See, half, half the people were like, "That's cool." And the other half were like, "Whoa, blasphemy!" You know, church. Here's a weird thing. Here's a weird thing. You can find a bar called any name in the world, but you cannot. You can find one single bar in America named Church in Boston. So there's a re- and there's a reason why. I thought it was the coolest name. That's so fucking cool. And it was my partner Matt Nerd. He goes. He calls me up one day. And he goes. You know. I want to ask you, because we were all bought off on church, and he goes, I'm a little concerned about this name. And it's already a hard enough business, right? And so, as a more mature entrepreneur, I'm like, you know, you're right. I used to die on the sword on shit like that, and I'm like, who cares if we call it fucking brick rail? Who cares? Just, you guys name it. Anyway, then there, and when I said, you guys name it, that's when the fighting started. Anyway, 11th hour we named it. So that was probably the biggest friction was naming it. Uh, yeah, that, that was it. And so how does it work with an investor? Do they want a percentage of the net proceeds? Um, so in general, how does it work when you're raising capital or how does it work for specifically that business? When you're raising capital. When you're raising, you're raising capital, capital in general. When you're trying to get an investor. Yep. So, well, first you have to put yourself in the shoes of investors. So what do they want? They want a return. profit. They, they want a return on their money, right. Right? right? Right. So there's a couple ways to get a return. One is they can finance you and do what's called a convertible note or some kind of essentially a note, a loan. Think of it like a loan. So what happens in that scenario is that capital is put to work with you, the entrepreneur. It's at risk, but it's gaining interest along the way. And then another way is you can do an equity round, which is you're giving up equity in your company based upon the future value of your company, right? So if you think your company's worth a million dollars today, but you project it's gonna be worth $100 million you know, in five years, they're going to buy in at a million dollars, and that equity grows over time in value. And then when you when you liquidate or have some sort of exit, they get their proceeds, right? So it can work a few different ways when you're raising capital. But those are the two most common: some sort of convertible note or an equity raise. Thanks. Um, you're welcome. Um, yeah. I know you say like you don't be having track record. Um, when it comes to Did you guys all hear that question? No. So he asked, you have, he, he caught on quickly that I have no track record in all the ventures that I do, which is very insightful. Um, and he said, well, how did you go pitch all these investors and how did you get them to trust you? And Josh, want to answer that? How did I get the investors to trust me, Josh? Got them greasy. <laughs> greasy. Yeah. Um, no, it's actually a really good question. So I look back on my career and I realize that I really love creating things and I really like starting things. And I tend to start things in areas that I have zero experience. So early in my career, I founded this mag- uh, actual consumer magazine. He was talking about snowboarding, skateboarding. It was a snowboard magazine, which had zero publishing experience. Um, later, I founded a social network of which I had zero social networking or coding experience. Uh, I opened a restaurant with zero restaurant ownership experience. I founded this mobile app company with zero mobile app development experience. I know, it's hilarious. I agree. It's fucking right. Um, And so on. Um, I have some real estate investments with zero real estate experience. Anyway, 
know, one of my favorite quotes is from Mark Zuckerberg, who, who said, you know, I have zero CEO experience, which is so true, but he's a really great CEO because he's super passionate about the product he's building and the problem he's trying to solve, right? And I think that's probably how I've got investors to trust me along the way, is that they look at me and when I tell them my story and what I want to build or what I want to accomplish, they see authenticity and they see a story that rings true um, and they see, you know, maybe someone who's going to maybe accomplish it. You know, right? The odds are pretty thin for anybody. Um, so I think one is just being authentic and true to what it is you really want to do, not just, you know, I'm doing this because I want to be the next Mark Zuckerberg and make a million dollars. It's like, no, I really want to work on this thing. I really want to open this restaurant concept with my friends. I founded that restaurant with my friends. And I want to do business differently. I'm going to share profits with every employee, which we've done. So, you know, really being true to whatever story it is that you're telling and or whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. And the other thing is like just having some sort of integrity and network, right? Last night, did anybody see this Warren Buffett documentary last night? Anybody watch that? If you haven't seen it, it debuted last night, and you think you know what Warren Buffett's about, and you don't. And I saw it last night, it's called like Becoming Warren Buffett. Fucking fascinating guy. He's really, really weird. No, he's a really weird dude. But he talks a lot about reputation. You just think, we all think of Warren Buffett as just like barren wizard who like knows how to invest in stocks. But actually, he built this reputation for 50 years. And a lot of the troubles he encountered were overcome strictly by his reputation, right? So I'd like to think that, you know, as a Sacramento native and as a business person in the world, I've slowly built building blocks of my reputation that anyone doing due diligence on me could look up and see glowing, you know, uh, marks. And I think that's the case. So, um, you started requested in 2014 or 2013. So I thought of the idea and I started it in 2012. Oh, in 2012. Yeah. Okay. And then you, um, at some point during that journey, you went to the launch incubator. That's right. Program. I'm curious, what were say two or three key takeaways, things that happened during the accelerator experience that uh, took you from where you were to where you became basically a company that somebody wanted to buy? Yeah, great question. So I'll give a quick foundation. For those of you, does anybody not know what the launch incubator is? It's okay if you don't. Anybody not know what it is? Oh. So a few people, okay. So there's an incubator, an accelerator that's like at the same level as like a Y Combinator or a 500 Startups in San Francisco. It's called, it's called Launch Incubator. And it's founded by a guy named Jason Calacanis, who is... He would say, and I would say, the most active and most prolific angel investor in the world. He's also super fucking brilliant. So he started this incubator where he picked, he did something different. He picked seven companies as opposed to like two batches of 30. And he focuses on seven and kind of works them through the program each, each uh, session. And the program is 12 weeks and then you launch, you, you debut your company. So Laura's question about what, what happened, what changed, what did we get out of it during those times and what, from where we started and where we came out. Man, a tremendous amount of change. Um, 
So the first thing I'll tell you is, back to raising money, when I raised our first round of funding for requested, which was a friends and family round here locally, my slide deck was 83 slides long. Anybody else have like an 83 slide pitch deck? I mean, I'm pitching these investors, they're just like, shut up, I'll write you a check, like shut up. Literally, 83 slides, I still have it to this day. And by the time incubator is over, I could pitch requested in four slides. It's harder than it sounds. It sounds easy, it's actually, it's really hard. You went from 83 slides to four slides. To four, <laughs> I have both decks. Um, the other thing was that, so I really honed, like he really helped me hone and distill what it is we're trying to do, the problem we're trying to solve, the, um, the space we're in, and how to get to what we do in 15 seconds. It used to take me this long, and everybody does this, right, as founders. How many people are founders in here, by the way? Okay, good, most of the room, awesome. So you know, as founders, we want to talk about, okay, the mobile space is this, and da 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 and you want to talk about stuff because it's fun to talk about. But the people on the other end don't want to hear all that. And most likely, they already know it, right? And if they don't know it, they'll ask you. So it's really important to get right to what it is you do and how you're making the world better and enriching people's lives like in 15 seconds, really fast. What's the 15 second pitch? For requested? <laughs> yeah. With requested, you can book a table and pay with your phone at awesome local restaurants. It's actually like three seconds. Red Rabbit, killer fucking restaurant. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but so like honing in on that pitch and like honing in on distilling our story in a in a smarter way. It's not just shorter, but a smarter way was a big piece. The other thing was like a real the biggest thing, especially for the founders of the room, and we were talking about this earlier, is a real focus on product. So I meet with founders all the time, all the time. Hey. <laughs> And they talk about like how they're gonna monetize a product they haven't built yet, or they talk about um, the market size, and all these things that are important to a company, they're important to making a business, but they really don't matter at your genesis. Like really, when, you, when it comes down to the essence, it's really about the product you're building. Like what is it that you're building? And Jason taught us how to be product first, and all the other stuff second. Um, so that was another big change coming up, going through that incubator. The other big one was just the network we were brought into. Uh, when we when we hooked up with JCal and that group, it's like it really is like joining a tribe. Like sincerely, you know, Jason's a really neat guy. He's a big time investor in some of the biggest companies you've ever heard of. And he, but he's a Brooklyn native at heart. Like this guy's a scrappy. He's just like all of us. He's actually a hardcore dude. Uh, who likes to, you know, work on the things that matter. And the difference is, you know, he's got this massive network of people that can help you succeed. So when you go through that incubator, we got to tap into the family and network and be a part of that family, essentially for the rest of our lives. So that was another big change. Yeah, I'd say that was another big change. Another question? Yeah, um, and maybe this is kind of almost a segue. Um, you... Oh, we raised a lot of money, too. Good. Um, <laughs> Do you, uh, do you use like a, do you have a steering committee or an advisory board that uh, you use now or before? And how, how did that play in? And maybe you can kind of chat about that. That's sure. So do we have a steering committee or an advisory committee or advisory board? The answer is yeah. And I highly suggest advisory boards. I think they're really, really good. And I think, I think a lot of young founders 
discount them because they seem kind of corporate and weird. I, don't, I think it's really good. Really, um, what an advisory board really does, especially for early stage founders, is all it does is surround you with people who maybe have been through what you've done before and give you access to good advice in a formal way, right? And making them formally is really good. So yes, we did. When we first started requesting the first thing, because I used to be really against that kind of stuff in my younger things, and it bit me in the ass. So the first thing I did was actually form an advisory board, and I got Mark Otero, who's a pretty successful entrepreneur out of Sacramento, uh, but a buddy of mine named Al, actually Ben's buddy, Alan, who's from Sequoia Capital, um, uh, my buddy Dave LaPlante, who's the founder at Arena, and, and a few other people. And what's that? Dan LaPlante. No, Dave LaPlante. Dave oh. LaPlante. And so, so what? What was cool about that was is it gave me access to these people that I could go to them with problems or or uh, questions, just like this, and say, "I'm thinking this, and what do you think?" And you get this really powerful advice. Plus, they become. You know, evangelist for you. Plus, they use it, and when they have problems, they tell you right away. So, we did form it, and uh, it was very powerful. Yeah. Is that something that you need to compensate people for? Well, you don't have to, but it's highly advisable that you do, because you want them bought in in a formal way, and you can do that. I think I think pretty standard is if you did one fifth of a point. So, what is that? Like twenty bits. That's pretty standard. It's not going to cost you shit. You know, you're breaking up one percent over the course of five people. Right, twenty bits per. That's pretty cheap for that kind of value early in your in your thing. Uh, I think that's a good way to do it. I think it's I think it's irresponsible to not compensate them for that. You're asking valuable people for their valuable time. Give them some upside down the line. You don't have to pay them money, but if, if they believe what you're doing, give them a little equity. If you have a big exit, they get a little check. So what would you say like was the biggest factor between like doing convertible notes or equity for you know when you're raising money? Like what's the what's the best way? That's a that's a question that I don't know if I can answer. Uh, I think that you know, as you is your company formed, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, yeah, seem, too, don't seem too sure. Well, so, <laughs> yeah. fair enough. Well, have you have you filed? Attorney, have you filed? No, okay. I haven't formed it yet because one attorney told me don't form the company yet until you talk to your initial investor because you're going to want to know what how they want to structure it. But I have people willing to give me money right now, and it's do I give them convertible notes? Or yeah. <laughs> so you can, you know, Clerky is a great. Have you guys ever heard of Clerky? Yeah. So use Clerky. It's a YC alum that you can form a Delaware C Corp for like three hundred bucks. Uh, form your company. If you're if you're serious about your company, just form your company. It doesn't cost a lot of money. Invest a little bit, and then you can take on capital or not. Is it better to take convertibles versus equity raises? Yes. What's that? It is. It's fast. And there's no tax implications. Yeah. So here's so someone who can talk to you afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Another question. There you go. There you go. Awesome. Yeah. Question? Hi. I want to apologize for being late. Um, I want to thank you, first of all, for yeah. the critique you gave me on my pitch. It really made a big difference. Good. And now You're my welcome. pitch is amazing. <laughs> but anyway, um, what I want to ask you is, I am have, I'm a founder of New City Drivers, and it's a startup for uh, rideshare drivers to help them start businesses um, booking scheduled rides, and um, you know Uber and Uber and Lyft drivers. Um, my thing is that like I'm not a techie, 
you know, and so it's like I'm having the hardest time finding someone to help me just put together my minimal viable product. That's all. And it's not even that complex, but I tried to put it together myself. Yeah. That was like a joke. It's like that, yeah. you know, like for a techie, like maybe somebody that's a techie, you know, they could just do it in five minutes. Like I have skills and other things. Question. question. Yes. What's the question? Well, what, what do you suggest, like, for someone who just really, I just want to get my product, it's not that difficult. What's out. the question? Well, who do, you, who do you suggest, or what do you suggest to get the minimal viable okay. product? What do I suggest to build a product? Please. Yeah. Okay. To get Sorry, the I just product. want to understand your question. Okay, let me be clear. Let me do it again. No, I got it. I got it. I got it. So, here, here, here's the thing. I was, we were just having a long conversation about this today okay. with another one of your, I think, batchmates in Hacker Lab or something like that with Kaylee. Oh, okay. um, it's really important <laughs> if you're in the software space that you have a technical co-founder. And it, it can't get any simpler than that. Now, you're welcome to get piles of money and outsource. There are some really great companies that do outsource app development, web app development, and software development. Me personally, from my stance, I don't suggest that. I think especially at very early stages where you're in concept phase, you know, something that you think people like, it's really important to have a technical co-founder who can help you build your product and make changes in iterations along the way. So my advice to you is, one, put all of your energy into finding a good technical co-founder who shares your vision. Two, how do you do that? Well, go to hackathons, uh, walk into coffee shops and yell out, is anybody a software developer? <laughs> Post, do your social media posts. Uh, be a vocal uh, person in the content forums around the topic and problem you're trying to solve. Try to Pied Piper some people into building a product for the... What's a content forum? What's a content forum? So like uh, a content forum might be any discussion online around the topic that you're in, the, the space you're in. Okay. So like for me, it'd be Reddit, it'd be like Reddit Sacramento restaurants. So I'm in that space, right? So... Um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not even that advanced. So find a technical <laughs> co-founder. Co so, so, is there any technical co-founders here? <laughs> Involved yeah. in the right your economy. It's there you awesome. go. Yeah, you're doing it now. <laughs> oh, mine were people that I actually worked with, but you know, it took me a few months, a handful of months to find them. Actually, you know, for me, I learned something early on. I used to guard ideas kind of tight, thinking that was so smart, and it's the stupidest thing. And I think everybody now has read that a million times. But I'm a little older, and so when I thought of requesting as an idea in June of 2012. I just started telling everyone who would listen about it. I would just tell everybody. It's so weird. Eight o'clock this morning, I had a guy meet me for coffee at Insight. He's like, I got this idea, dude. It's amazing. And he's like, I won't tell you. He wants me to sign an NDA. And I'm like, I'm not signing an NDA. It's just not going to happen. But he wants to guard the idea. That's cool. I mean, maybe it is the next NASA idea. But tell everybody you can find about your idea, you know, which is cool just to get validation anyway. And then start asking if people know anybody who wants to maybe work on the idea. Instead of just asking for software developers, ask for people who want to work on the idea and solve the problem with you. You'll find that technical co-founders come in lots of different stripes. That's the cool part. So that's how I found mine. It's people I worked with and I asked them to join me. Um, along those lines, did you, obviously people know you locally, did you use any media to help get your investors on, you know, get investors on board? Did you? find that obviously once you were at a customer acquisition point that makes a big deal but do you find that helpful early on 
Or did you do any of that? Use media, do you mean like... Use like, media, like PR. Tap to press. Oh, right, right, right. Like, uh, like straight up. Yeah, report. yeah, yeah, yeah uh, good or, question. How'd you yeah. get the word out? Right, did I like hack that? Um, Explain that word. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> well, yeah. I started with one wealthy individual who was stoked and he wrote the first check and went from there. See, the funny thing is like really rich people hang out with other really rich people. <laughs> and they do, right? And VCs hang out with VCs and founders hang out with founders and you know, it's just, just the nature of humanity. Um, so one was I went to my you know, network first and also my, this wealthy individual who wrote the first, very, very first check. Um, he started bringing in some of his wealthy friends to look at the deal. I had to pitch it, I had to explain it, I had to do all the work, but he was making the introductions. What happened was, you know, he wrote the first check, I'm pitching it, and they all just fell. So um, that's how we raised our first round. Our second round was actually almost the same thing. Jay Cal invested, and you know, Jason's like the super pie piper, so he just brought in all his VC friends, <laughs> and they were looking at the deal, and you know, a lot of, enough invested to fill the round that way. Um, yeah, VC and raising capital is a really weird thing. There's so much money in, in the investment space, but you know, investors want to work with people that either have validation from their other investor friends or has traction of something that they discover, right? So just pitching people cold rarely works. You know, just knocking on doors. It can work, and if you do a numbers game, it can work, but it's pretty tough. Um, press and media can be a way. I think that it's probably somewhat rare for investors to react to that because of so many failed startups who have gotten so much press. I'll name Homejoy to start. Uh, you familiar with them? So yeah, so not a lot of people are wagged by that. Local people might be. Um, we got a little bit of press along the way, but we I, we never saw the press equate to venture dollars. Ever. But it hopefully did it yield customers once you know everything like that. Press always makes people check you out. Always. So if you look at our data, Jeff knows this. If you look at our data, when we got a, when requested early on, got a Sacramento B article, like usership 50x, right? Yeah, but then came back down because there was an issue with the product. So we had product issues. So press will always think of press like fuel, like like gasoline. If you have a, a fire that's burning, well then what happens when you pour gasoline on it? It gets bigger, right? But what if you just have logs and it's not burning yet? What does gasoline do? It just makes the logs wet, right? So that's what press does. And how did you again? Did you find your investor? How again did I find my investor? Uh, the first was just it was just a local network. Um, telling people about my idea. Actually, the first the first investor requested was telling people about my idea, and the guy came to me eight months later and said, "Hey, this is really cool. You need to form a company, and I want to raise money with you." So, so I just kept telling people about the idea. Um, did you make the waiter app, or you just worked there? So, no, I I built the requested app, and then waiter acquired requested. And so now I build requested app and I work. I mean, I'm sorry, now, now I help build waiter app and I work there. Okay, that's a food delivery app, right? Correct, food delivery and carry app. Okay, but there are so many of those, so how do you differentiate? What's so special about, not just yours, sure. but in general, there are so many. And I'll be honest, I've never even done food delivery. Yeah. I'll probably live with you people under the age of 30 that has it. Yeah. But I think, the, my thinking is the food's going to get to my house, it's going to be cold, maybe 
Macarena's song is me condensation on the top of it. I'm being serious. That's what happens if you go to Macarena's yeah. and we live like three miles away from Macarena's and Faro's yeah. and the food's already cold. Yeah. I'm like, why am I going to pay five, someone five, seven dollars to give me cold, soggy food? Yeah. So, um, so besides that, can you please tell me like, yeah. how do you guys differentiate in the food delivery sure. space? We're misinformed on a ton of topics. So the first is, let me, let me unpack what you're saying a little bit. So you're saying there's so many of those. Well, there are quite a few, yeah. But there's really not that many, ironically, as it turns out. So Morgan Stanley issued a white paper. <coughs> you know Morgan Stanley, right? Yeah, yeah. Bank, bank. Global right. Bank. Right. Uh, they issued a white paper, and this 76-page white paper that was a really long, like, six-month research study on the restaurant space, and specifically as it relates to online ordering and delivery. And it's really fascinating. And as it turns out, while to the layman, or the late majority, which you would be, um, it seems to be a crowded space that is already taken. However, this, the, the restaurant industry in the US is $700 billion market a year, of which about, 700 billion, of which about 250 billion of that is addressable for food delivery and online ordering space to people like us. Okay. Care to venture a guess of what amount of that was realized last year? 2.5%. So there's actually this huge blue ocean to sale, and apps like us and Postmates and DoorDash can't keep up with demand. There's not enough of us, as a matter of fact. So you're a little misinformed on that part. Okay, but say the, the, the other thing is, um, you haven't used it yet, and that's okay because a lot of people haven't used it yet. There's like, you ever read Jumping the Chasm? So read that book, it's a really great book. So you're just part of this late majority. You will use it eventually. All right, so that's, that's sort of the second piece. Now, how do we differentiate ourselves, right? Okay, there's a few different ways. The first way is the technology that we've built. So we've actually built, like everybody, a consumer-facing app, mobile, Android, right? And a web ordering app. And we built a driver app, right? But where we differentiate ourselves, the first step, is we built this, like, this incredible restaurant app that lives inside the restaurant, which a consumer, like, do you own a restaurant? Uh, no. Okay, it's not like a POS system. It's essentially a POS system. Okay. That's right. I know. Right. So we built our own, essential, essentially a POS. Okay. It's not the whole point of sale, but we've essentially built a POS system that lives inside the restaurant, which we call order management. And it is an incredibly powerful tool and some super deep tech that runs the system. It's sort of one way. Another way we differentiate ourselves is we take photos of every single menu item, so our competitors don't. And believe it or not, that sounds like the simplest part. That's, That's so real, though. The most desirable. It's like yeah. amazing. So every yeah. photo inside our waiter, yeah. you can see like what the guacamole looks like, what the sushi roll looks like, whatever. Is it lots of mayonnaise or no mayonnaise or whatever? So you can see all of the menu items. <laughs> it's a big piece of what That's we do. So it's huge. Yeah. Huge. Okay. That's, that's two. The third way we differentiate ourselves, which is really big, we own the driver network, and this speaks right to your big fear, which is, is the food going to come soggy or cold or whatever the case may be? Well, our competitors do the classic on-demand, sign up on the website, anyone can drive for us, go on a Postmates t-shirt and go ahead and drive, right? We don't. We actually do face-to-face -face interviews with every single one of our 1,200 and growing drivers, 1,200 drivers that work for us. We do full FBI background checks on every single one of them. We do uniforms. 
and we, we manage their, you know, the tech on their driver. So we own the driver network, which is a big, big difference when you own the network. So that's, that's another big difference. Um, another, another differentiator that we have is, and this is another really huge one, our competitors throw everybody on in the market, okay? So if you use DoorDash, you're gonna call Red Rabbit and you're gonna order a French toast at fucking 7 p.m. on a Friday night. And everyone's gonna be confused. You're going, I'm on DoorDash trying to get this French toast. And it, I mean, you're not gonna call, the driver's gonna call because Red Rabbit never signed up for DoorDash. But they put a brunch menu on there available 24 seven. And then someone calls manually to try and get that demand order going and it breaks down the system. It doesn't work. We make partnerships with every single restaurant on the network in advance. So everything runs smooth. So bottom line, our tech is better, our driver network's better, and our experience is better. That's reality. Uh, piggybacking off like uh, the, the product itself, I know a waiter, uh, it's like $6.99 delivery fee. I'm just curious on how you guys come up with that number, uh, how they did, or how you contributed to uh, deciding on that number. It's a great question. It's a really great question. So we come up with that number. We're in four states. We have three different delivery fees. We have five bucks, six bucks, and seven bucks. So Lake Charles, Louisiana is five bucks. Houston, Texas is six bucks. And Roseville, California, and soon to be Sacramento, California, Davis, California will be seven bucks, right? So how do we come with that number? Well, the first thing, I guess this speaks to another differentiator, is the first thing is we do flat fee no matter what you order. So we had an order recently that was a single Coke, seven bucks. No joke. We had a we had an order recently that was 175 cheeseburgers, seven bucks. No joke. Our competitors charge percentage fees to the consumer. I was at my house. I lived right over here. I ordered one speed on Postmates. I got two pizzas, two salads. Fucking delivery is 14 bucks because they do this percentage little gimmick, right? Sucked. That's a lot. Fourteen dollars is a lot for delivery. I mean, five, seven, eight bucks, I'm getting fine with that, but 14 seems high. So, first off is we do flat fee, no matter what you want. How do we figure that out? Well, we base it around the, the way that we can be sustainable as a business, okay? So, we make money three different ways, okay? The first is when restaurants join our network, they pay a one-time upfront fee. That pays for all those photos. We send a perfect, we have five photographers on staff. We pay salary to them. Five high, so they come out, shoot high-res photos, and the restaurant gets them. So, you know, Golden Bear gets photos of all their foods they can use on social media, and they can use them willy-nilly. So, if you know anything about photography, one photo shoot's two grand. I mean, photographers are expensive, right? Uh, maybe a student photographer's 500 bucks, but a good pro photographer's a couple grand. So we give them, all, we do all the photos, then there's the device and the tech and the setup, and so we do a bunch of marketing for them. That kind of covers the upfront fee, right? So that's one of our revenue streams. The other revenue stream is when people make an order, the restaurants pay a percentage. We get a little percentage of that, and we process the transaction, we get a percentage of that. And then the third way is the delivery fee that the consumer pays, right? So what we did, and I know this is a long answer, but what we did is we created a balance between those three, rather than our competitors who push it all on the consumer, we balance those three, we say, you know what? If it's a flat seven bucks, you know, five, six, seven bucks, and we have a little bit from the transaction, a little bit from the upfront, we can be sustainable as a company and offer a great service. That's how we got it. That's awesome. 
Thanks. So you were saying that you had like zero business experience in a lot of the ventures you started. That's right. Um, which is interesting and awesome. I was wondering. Or like, sad. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that it is. Means. But like, it seems awesome now. How did you like <laughs> wrangle with that, or how did you come up to speed in whatever industry you were in, or did it not even matter that you just went there with their head to fix a problem? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, I would say that there were three different ways. The first way was I had a really great co-founder and mentor early on when I was doing my publishing company, this magazine, who really mentored me and, and, I mean, truly mentored me, brought me up to speed and taught me what to focus on and what not to focus on. As best he could with a 20-something-year-old and a fucking huge ego, right? <laughs> um, and that was my first real company, my first exit at 25 in that whole world. I did that for 10 years. So that was one way. The other way was I ran a company that I founded like a total dictator, and I got my ass handed to me hard. I mean, I got destroyed. And that teaches you in a pretty major way how not to be a founder. Wait, a dictator as in not listening to your coworkers? That's right. Or yeah, not listening to anyone. Okay. You're all, I'm Steve Jobs times 10. You're doing it my way, period. Uh, which was bad. Uh, so that was very humbling and also just a great lesson, you know. Uh, and then, you know, really just finally, I think, coming around to studying, you know, actually taking the time. Uh, you know, back to this Warren Buffett documentary. So, as it turns out, Warren Buffett doesn't have any insider information that we don't have. The guy reads like seven hours a day. All he does is hole up in this room and read every day, all day, all these papers and magazines and all this information that's available to every human being on Earth. And then he just makes those decisions based on the data. It's all data we all have, right? So it's the same thing, you know, when you're a young founder, at least when I was a young founder, I was pretty cowboy, I wanted to be crazy and live life and ride the lightning, right? And you realize you gotta stop and you gotta know what you don't know and study it. You gotta learn. And ask your coworkers and your co-founders and ask people better than you and also raise your hand and say, hey, I don't know how to do this. Can someone else do it or can someone teach me? Or can I take the time and study it and learn, you know, and listen more? So those are the three ways that I've learned to get into industries that I don't have any experience in. Thank you. You're welcome. I have a question. Yeah? How difficult was it for you to get restaurants on board and requested? Yeah. If you have any idea how difficult was it for a waiter to get into the Sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. So um, the question was how difficult to get, to, res to get restaurants on board for requested and for waiter. So requested, it was... On a scale of one to ten, the difficulty was uh, maybe a four. Pretty easy, and here's why: there was very little risk for the restaurant, so we didn't charge anything, and we just said, "Hey, we're going to take a percentage, and we drive you business, right?" So that part wasn't too difficult, uh, but it was difficult because there was, you know, there's still a commitment, and you're getting into their operations. For waiter. The beginning was hard, of course, something new. And as it turns out, waiters started as the same thing as requested was. It was dynamic and making offers. Um, that was really hard. But waiter pivoted sooner to delivery and carryout. And you know, the first couple, 
kind of top now on a scale of one to ten. It's you know it's it's maybe a three. I mean, restaurants are never going to be easy. Any SMB is never going to be easy. There's a lot of noise, um, but now we have real traction, real data, and a real value equation. We can show them, um, and so yeah, maybe a three. So what steps when you started out with the requested did you take to validate the idea, initial idea behind it? No. And once you went to the launch, launch program or yep. launch accelerator, okay. accelerator, what where was requested at that time? Yeah, great question. So the question is what steps did we take to validate the idea on the way and then when we got to launch, what at what point were we? So validation, all right. So it's cool. So I thought of this idea in the summer of 2012, and the first thing I started doing for validation was telling everyone that would listen to me. I mean, everyone. Hey, check this out. What do you think of this? And requested started as Priceline for restaurants. Get it? Ah, sorry. Name your own price at a restaurant. So I would sit and tell people the idea, and that was validation sort of one, uh, and then. The next step of validation was working with my co-founders and building screens. So we would actually design screens and they'd go show, because you can tell people, and of course their imagination is different than yours, and they're thinking, well, oh, that sounds pretty cool, or that's a stupid idea, you get both, right? Then you show screens and go, okay, what's your name? Daryl. Okay, Daryl, you push here, and then you do this, and then you do this, and then you do this on paper, right? And then the people are like, oh, I get it. Then you get real validation, because then they can touch it and feel it and go, I would do this, what about this, have you thought of this problem, you get all the craziness, right? You're basically your first product, right? So screen, or what we call UIs, right? Then the next step for validation was building a real prototype and selling my first three customers. So I went to three restaurants, one was mine, but I still had to sell my partner. Um, and the other two were Morgan's Bar and Grill, burned down and out of business, and Bows and Arrows, out of business. <laughs> but I, I talked to three people and said, hey, would you, you know, please, please be my customer and test this with me, please. Got three people to do it, and I said, boom, we're launching. Built a real prototype. So that was validation number three. That lasted, like, real life, like, four weeks, maybe. Had to shut down too many bugs. But we validated. We built it. We built a product, and it worked. And then we went through another year of building. And then we, we got to the point where we had to quit our jobs. And raise, so we quit our jobs and raised some money. And then we actually built the next iteration. Wait, so quit, sorry. Yep. So quit your jobs. Yeah, we were doing all this while on you know, the weekends and nights. But at one point, it was requested when you made, made that decision to quit your jobs. It was right then. It was like we had the prototype. Oh, oh, it oh. The prototype basically failed. Okay. But we knew there was something there. And we said, fuck it. You got to decide, commit or not commit. So we said, screw it, quit our jobs. We didn't raise money for another eight months. Yeah, it was pretty hairy. That was a hairy time. I got kids, dude. I got kids and fucking 10 out, you know, mortgages or whatever. But anyway, um, so, so yeah, so we quit our jobs and lived on ramen or whatever the hell we lived on for eight months, raised some money. That's where I was telling her earlier. Raised a little bit of money so we could eat. And then we built, then finally we had built a product that worked. Then we had about 30 restaurants on. No real traction, but we had some customers on. The product worked, it was in App Store, and you could see it. And that's where we were, and that's when we showed Jason. And that's when he was like, okay, something. 
protesters. Daryl. Go ahead. I worked for a mortgage uh, lender one time, and uh, so they just did, uh, you know, home loans and refis and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But on the side, he had this business where he, uh, he published um, he published mortgage rates in uh, in uh, a number of magazines or newspapers around the country, and uh, and he, he made a tiny amount of money. But what he got out of it was he got to see what other lenders were doing. Right. I'm just kind of wondering if now you got all those pictures, all that food, does that kind of play into the Red Rabbit there? <laughs> So Red Rabbit, no. Uh, I mean, you know, Red Rabbit's one store, um, but no. But as far as like the photos and all the all the data we have at Waiter, it's gobs and gobs of data. I mean, I wouldn't call it big data yet, but it's gobs, man. We can tell you what proteins are most ordered, what sides are most ordered, what the average price is for add-ons, and we can tell you so much data about literally hundreds, well, over a million, over a million orders. A lot of orders, so that plays well for <coughs> some things we're working on for the future. Uh, what was burn rate like after receiving funding? And how much did burn rate play into play with uh, joining forces with uh, Waiter? Yeah, great question. Uh, we were burning, requested was burning, what was our burn rate? Oh, 40, 50,000 a month. Yeah, we were burning some cash. No, very, we had revenue though, but little revenue. Um, how did that play into it? I mean, it only plays into it as much as, I mean, that's too small amount to play into an acquisition. So it wasn't really a play. So you started uh, once in a while, well, you know, at the same time you had Red Rabbit. Yeah. And I, I find that I've seen a lot of, uh, I see this as entrepreneurs, they start dabbling in different things. Yeah. And, uh, and I've done it myself. And what happens is you sort of lose focus on one. Uh, and how did you sort of manage like these two businesses? You know, you, yeah. know, you start up and then Red Rabbit. That's great question. Well, it's interesting because I took I took some of the learnings from really getting my ass kicked on some of the other things I've done, and it was I really understood the lesson about you know the Paul Graham line about products change, people don't, and I really focused on team. That's the only way I got it done. So. With Red Rabbit, what I did was, I wanted to do that to prove myself as an entrepreneur and as a venture. I always wanted to own a restaurant, so I just figured, you know, life's short, I could die tomorrow, screw it, let's do it. And so I did it against better wisdom, and, you know, luckily it's turned out well, but what I did was a few different things. Number one was, I picked my two co-founders that I really wanted to work with. Number two, I gave my co-founders a decent little chunk of equity with zero capital in, vested day one. Now, both those things hardly ever happen. No vesting schedule, no cliffs. Day one, move to Jamaica, and you own this business. So show that commitment. Third thing I did was I gave my co-founders 16% above market salary for their positions. And the fourth thing I did was I took 5% of our equity of Red Rabbit baked it into our operating agreement as a profit-sharing pool for every single employee of Red Rabbit, including, I'm talking dishwashers, a hostess who works one day a month. Everybody gets profit-sharing. We've done nine cash distributions in under five years. So it's not bullshit marketing speed, it's cash. So 
those are the mechanisms I put in place to help that business run with that team. It does. And is that why, because that's a good business model, and that we're in similar, I'm founding a similar business. So, a little different, but is that, and I'm going after the same thing, like it's all about the employees and the team and all of that. Would you attribute, because restaurants come and go every day, would you, would you say that that was what made the difference because of the workers and what they put into it and everybody's on a unit, they're one unit, they become one unit together? Would you say that? No, I wouldn't, actually. But what, 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 I'll tell you what made the difference. What made the difference? Four things. Success and The fundamentals. Service, ambiance, food, and drink. Okay. You can never polish a turd, okay? Right. I could have the best fucking gimmicky marketing program or right. profit sharing program. I give 90% of the employees. If the restaurant sucks, no one's going to come there. Right. Service. So right. all those things are just because of my ideals and my belief. Right. That's why I did those things. Also, to Rich's question, it was a mechanism to help the business run. Because I don't know how to run a restaurant. I really don't. <laughs> I mean, I truly do not know how to run a restaurant to this day. And my partners laugh at me when I come in. They go, they literally make fun of me, literally. <laughs> um, okay. But I do understand this business, We're on the same page. and I understand We're on the same, that, yeah, same and way I understand way. how the yeah. business works. I understand, you know, right. PLs. I understand how to run a business, uh, but I also understand what I believe in. So that was just me injecting some of my beliefs into an old archaic industry, which is the restaurant industry, and just seeing it was where it's kind of an experiment, to be quite frank. But to your question, what made it work were the four fundamentals: ambiance, service, food, and drink. Okay, with the food delivery apps, have restaurants noticed cannibalization, or is it additional customers that would have typically been too lazy to leave their house? I'm, I imagine a little bit of both, but yeah. on average, what is it? Increasing sales, or are they losing it? 100 percent incremental, and it's proven, and I'll tell you how. So restaurants, if I queried all you guys on your favorite restaurants. A couple of them would be outside of your local sphere, but most of them would be in your little ant trail, right? Because we all have little ant trails, right? Your local neighborhood spot, your favorite spot you met your girlfriend at, boyfriend, whatever. And those are the places you go. What food delivery apps have done is take the market sphere of a single location and go So it's all incremental business. It's like, what's interesting that's happening is we just did a study and we're finding that about 20% of our established market restaurant partners, I'm sorry, 100% of our established market restaurant partners are experiencing 20% lifts in annual income. 20% lifts in annual income. It's crazy. It's because the market the market size just got bigger. And that, and that, that must have a, a better margin too than people come and sit down. How does that work? Yes or no? Yeah, so margin's a tricky, tricky play, right? If, if you're not a very good restaurant, well, that's kind of hard. But here's the thing about delivery and carryout, is that if we can provide incremental sales by increasing your market size, right? So if, if most of the customers come within a three-mile radius, but now we took it to a five-mile radius, right? So now we've added 50,000 new customer, potential customers, and we serve up so many orders, right? Or maybe people who wouldn't have gone to you because they don't like your parking. Or people who wouldn't have gone to you. Right? All these things that human beings think about. 
You know, I know Red Rabbit, we're in Midtown, so sometimes, you know, like my parents live in Tile Park, like, oh, it's crazy in Midtown, like, it's nuts. Like, no, it's not. You just park, like, 40 feet away. <laughs> it's called a parking meter, Mom. It's not a big deal. You put in a dollar and it charges the thing. It's two hours. You can eat and leave. You know, anyway. Um, so what we found is if you have a good restaurant that runs sustainably, say the Golden Bear, right? Let's just say the Golden Bear does, you know, um, let's, say, let's say they do $5 million a year, right? Well, the fixed costs of labor, cost of goods, rents, and all the things that go into running this business are fixed around this $5 million a year ecosystem, right? So if we come in and we are basically adding to utilization of the kitchen, what happens? Well, margins crank up because you're utilizing a space that's already being economized, right? So we're getting 20% more revenue out of a space that already is producing a sustainable revenue base. So the margins don't necessarily get better, but the revenue gets better, which means the annual margins do get better because you're utilizing the space a little better on the fixed labor and goods. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. So. Oh, sorry, you're next, go ahead. So one of my questions is just location, location, location. And I want to be in Midtown. The closer to the Golden Run Center, the better. But I don't really have an investor. And what is, I'm a statistical person, and you were just talking stats. And what I wanted to find out is like, okay, so what's the, here's this neighborhood, this neighborhood, where Red Rabbit is, for example. Midtown. So, Midtown. So, um, in that neighborhood, there's so many restaurants and, um, their, you know, their average sale price is, and when do they make their most sales, and how much is the average sale for that? So I'm setting an expectation of what my daily sales need to be for my rent for my expenses. Do you follow me? And so is there a way, do you, do you know where I can get that information? And do you, because there's this neighborhood, then there's Old Town, then there's, you know, up by Golden One, then there's R Street, and it's like, I kind of want to be iconic, okay. you know, because, you know. So what's the question? So do you know where I can get that? I have two yeah. questions. Do you mentor? Would you mentor somebody like me? Hey, first of all. Yeah. Second of all, um, do you know where I can get that statistical data? Sure. For the different uh, neighborhoods. Yeah, so the mentor, uh, you know, I mean, I'm easily accessible. I don't know that I could take on a full mentorship other than, you know, we can meet once in a while and okay. hang out. And yeah. I'd be happy to share anything I know with you at no cost. Happy to do that. Um, so yeah, I know exactly where you get that information. Put the work in. I mean, you need to go to, if you want to know that data, go to every restaurant, steal the menu, look at the menu, photograph the menu, they put it in your Excel grid, start building your stat charts. Okay. That's it. Now, you okay. can't get volumes. I mean, these are privately held companies. You never even get volumes. You can go to NDA, Midtown Business Association, DSP, Downtown Sacramento Partnership. You know those two things? Do you know those? No. Okay, so Midtown Business Association, Downtown Sacramento Partnership, they've got some data for you. Also go to the Sacramento Convention and Visitors Bureau. They're going to have some data for you. But it's going to be blunt data. If right. you want to know that data, go put the fucking legwork in. Yeah. Typically at home, I'd be like, you know what, I'm not going to get a dessert, or I already have ice cream in the 
fridge, a tub of ice cream, a window of dryers, dryers, three ninety nine, four ninety nine. Why would I pay five dollars for a ice cream round? Yeah. Like, how do you get you? Of course, you can do the basic. Oh, would you like dessert? Yeah. But restaurants at large market, from what I understand, I've never been in the restaurant business, but I read a lot. I guess. Cool. So my age, and a huge part of the restaurant business is coffee, and drinks, soda, you know, and alcohol. Yep. When they're doing delivery, um, are you able to? I guess if someone's twenty one. Like mixed drinks, you're not going to deliver a margarita with salt or whatever, right? right? How, how does that work for restaurants that they're increasing, you know, sales, but the profit margin on food is small, and they're missing out now on those on that alcohol? Sure. Anyway. All right. So, a couple questions embedded in it. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Um, sorry. No, no. So the first is, as it turns out, the profit margin on food is not small. The problem is, the cost of goods and the cost of running an operation versus the volume most places sell is high. Profit margin on food. It's typically 70%. The, the, the <laughs> well, pizza is really great, right? But no, really, I mean, your cost of goods on food should be roughly 30% or less. Cost of goods. Now, all your other expenses, they start to chomp on that, right? No question. So remember, if we're selling incremental food, we're giving you a 70% margin with a market you didn't have before. So don't let the misnomer of that. I mean, the, the general thing is, of course, when you're coming in and you order two pastas and you get like seven martinis, of course you make more dollars on the martinis, no question. And, and it doesn't perish. The other thing, pasta perishes, the vodka doesn't perish, and gin doesn't perish. So there's all those goofy things about that. But to your question, so first off, there is alcohol delivery going on. We don't do alcohol delivery at this point. We're working on it, but it's not what we do. But that's going on. Can you order a martini? You can, well, you can order like bottles of wine, oh, beers, okay, and stuff. Okay, I was going to go. Uh, I mean, the, the, the salt on my tiny glass. That's that's a that's an in. And remember, delivery apps, all of us, DoorDash and the GrubHub, the We're not trying to kill the restaurant experience. I mean, look, we don't want everyone to be a hermit in their house ordering online. That's lame. We want people to have that when they can do that there, and then have the go out experience. And we do this here, right? They're both valuable. Um, okay. So the other part of your question, which was about. Uh, you're talking about margins. Upselling. Oh, yeah, upselling. Okay, so this is interesting. This is very interesting. The typical to go order. So, what's the number one way people order to go food? Go. Number one way. Telephone. Bingo. It's like 98%. It was the established truth, about 97.5%. So, when they order to go food, the average check is about, like, it's $14. Okay? The average check on an online order, 30 so just, it's, it's basically Amazon part two, right? When you went to a store, or a grocery store, you would go, uh, I don't know if I really need that. You look at the price tag when you're on Amazon, click, 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 prime, prime, let's roll, baby, come on, right? So what happens is the, the nature of online ordering helps people order more. The other crazy thing is we do full modifiers on every menu item that offers them. Modify, you know what modifiers are? Like add 50 cents sour cream. Right, right. Okay. I want extra sour cream or I don't want, yeah, yeah. modifiers. Okay. So the modifiers are there. Okay. Although I love the idea of suggesting desserts like that. We haven't built it yet, but that's a great feature. So you should hire me. Yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Yeah. 
So his question was, because the $7 delivery fee is the thinking, let me order as much as possible. And the answer is no. Say that again. His question was, well, since there's a delivery fee of $7 to get my food, is, is my thinking, let me order as much as possible to make the 7 bucks worth it, right? And the answer is no. After 1.2 million orders, which is a pretty good sample size, I'd say. Uh, <laughs> The answer is no. The average order is thirty dollars across the board. I mean, it doesn't change. It doesn't shift. I mean, I, I would think that the major difference would be if, if somebody calls up and orders. You know, like I call up some hamburger place that I want, or maybe a pizza place. Say, so, you know, I was down there one time and I really like yeah. that one pizza. So that's the thing I know about, right? Yep. So if you get on yours and you got all these pictures, I'm like, hmm, all this other stuff. Here's the weird thing. This isn't me selling waiter or any of our competitors. But here's the weird thing. When you start to look at the value of your time on planet Earth and getting what you want, you start to go, why am I fucking even thinking about $7? No, really, this is how people in their true deepest psychology start to think is that, wait, I really want this now and there's no other way to get it, to get this thing, right? And, and the, the experience and the joy of getting that thing when you're in a hotel room in a random city when you're um, at home and you've been drinking or whatever, or you're, you know, all these different scenarios, or you're at work and you can't get away because you have a deadline, all these different scenarios, you know, whether it's a free delivery promo code or, you know, it's just like when all of us, when we need to get, you want to get out of somewhere and you use an Uber and you're just like, fuck, it's surge pricing, but I just want to go home. Then you're like the next day, like, why was I stressing on $11? It's like, it's, it's really, it's really trippy. So the answer is no. Yeah. No, we don't. Um, it's interesting. With requested, we tried that. With requested, we did freaking promo codes till the day is long. Give ten, get ten. You get ten bucks. We'll give you your friend ten bucks. And this, it, it, it's not. It's, it's not the best. First off, it's a channel that's already been like milk dry. Like there's so many promo codes out there. You can go online and search for any service, and they'll give you the first month free, first ride free, first this free, 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 free. So we kind of decided, let's not do promo codes, and we don't. I mean, very occasionally, we'll do it, like very occasionally. We get asked for it all the time, but the answer is no, we don't do promo codes. We let the product stand on its own, and it's a good value, you know? <laughs> Food delivered for seven bucks is pretty killer. Yeah. So um, a little bit away from the restaurant business. Yeah. Uh, requested uh, was acquired by Waiter. That's right. And I'm assuming you guys came to a financial agreement, but other than this, that's usually how acquisitions work. Yes. <laughs> what, what were the key factors for you in making a decision that you wanted to be acquired? Sure. Um, so there's, there was a few key factors, Laura. Uh, the first was that. By the time we started to get a little bit of traction with requested, 
because we had gone through, like we were talking earlier, a lot of evolution of our product. And we started to see something that started to work. It moved away from the name your own price thing and was became essentially a hotel tonight for restaurants. And it was starting to happen a little bit. I mean, a little bit. But by the time we had made that change, we were running out of money. And if you recall, January was the worst VC month in like 15 years. So we were going out to raise money in January. And we were like, uh-oh, this is not good. So that was one factor, was capital. Um, however, we had converted our business model to from just strictly a consumer play to essentially a software as a service play. So we became enterprise where we could license our software to other partners. And it was already working. But we started to do the math on how SaaS is going to pay off, and it was pretty long. That was another factor. Um, but I'll tell you, the biggest factor was when Chris and I met. Chris is the founder of Waiter. Chris is kind of Chris Mo. You know, we actually had this weird. And by the way, if you look at the odds on any kind of like stat book, in Reality, we should have never met. Like, he and I should have never met. Really, it's crazy. And we met by total kismet. And when we had our first phone call, we just had this, like, crazy bond. Like, we, we really, really felt kind of brother from another mother type of vibe. You know what I mean? And, and I just, the other third factor besides that vibe, was because you know waiter truly wasn't our only you know transition. We knew we were going to transition one way or another. But when we met and we really started to get to know each other, and I had said, "Look, this is a big space we're attacking," as we established earlier, and there's some big players entering that space. And I was just like, "I don't want to. I don't think we can conquer it alone. I know we. Can, I know we can't conquer it alone. We need some help." And, you know, meeting their team and the people and the culture of this place was, like, something that's so rare. I mean, having done so many ventures in my life and worked in so many places, it's a rarity to see the culture that we have in this place. And that was really the ultimate deciding factor for me. Did you have a transition or strategy when you started or goals when you started requesting? And how did those evolve? So the question, if you guys can hear, was did we have an exit strategy or some sort of transition or goals when we started requesting? The answer is hell yeah, we were going to be bigger than Uber. That was our, that was our exit strategy, <laughs> like every founder, right? Uh, no, really, we thought that we had stumbled upon something that was so magical that it was going to be ubiquitous across the world, inevitable. I mean, we truly believe that. So we thought, yeah, you know, we could see Square buying us or Visa MX. I mean, that was where we were dreaming. Um, so that was, yeah, that was that was our strategy was that we were going to be so large that we would either go public or MX would buy us. That was what we thought. And how did that evolve? Being brought back. Reality sets in uh, and lack of traction, and you know, it evolves in the sense that. You're still committed to your dream, but 
you know, you're trying to solve the problem of making the engine start, you know, and get it, getting it going. And so you just work on that every day while still trying to stay committed to this crazy dream. So now that you're part of Waiter, uh, how is the, like, do you spend your more, more of your time on the Waiter aspect of business? Or are you dividing between your Waiter and your requested? And I guess the other, the second part is how, what's the strategy between the two apps? Sure. So requested actually launched in Baton Rouge, uh, Louisiana. And we've since, so now we're on, you know, the Waiter deal went down last summer, and then we announced it at Thanksgiving. Um, now that we're part of Waiter, we shut down Baton Rouge, and we're shutting down Sacramento in the next few weeks. Why? Because we're launching Waiter here. And oh, we're, good. So I have that out. Good. So it's good job. <laughs> good job. And we're building, we're, we're, we've got, now we've got like 16 engineers. You know, we were like two. Now we've got an engineering staff of 16 software developers and hiring probably another 10. Where are they where are headquartered? We have HQ in Lake Charles and Lafayette, two cities. I mean, but we have offices. We have we have about twelve offices around the nation. So most of them are little small ones. And so, basically, what we're doing is we're we're we spend zero time on requesting. And what we're doing is we're taking the requested value equation, which is dine-in and dynamic pricing, and we're building it into later. The cool thing is. We get to sort of re-engineer that value equation into the app the way that we think the users will. So requested as an app, as it is now, is going away. Requested as it is now is going away. Exactly. Right. Right. We're going to have a wait. Uh, oh, how did you make that decision <laughs> to go to Matt and really launch a company <laughs> while you're located in Sacramento? Why not Sacramento? That's a great question. Desperation. <laughs> if you didn't hear the question, he's like, how the hell did you go from Sacramento to Baton Rouge? What happened was... In 2014, I was in New York City speaking about this idea of requested. You know, just giving a keynote and trying to, just like all you guys that are founders, hustling my wares, right? Yeah. And I got invited to uh, this conference in New York, and I'm like, well, we don't have any customers there. I'll just go there and speak. And these guys came up to me afterwards and were like, man, this is fucking cool. Can't believe what you're doing. This is so cool. I want to bring it to my town. And I was like, remember, this is back when my exit strategy was selling to Amex or being as big as Airbnb. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll let you know when we get to your little town someday. We'll call you. You know, give me a car, whatever, right? Because the dream was still alive. The dream was still alive. Took the card, though. So time goes on. And as we decided we're going to change, we started getting a lot of incoming inquiries of people who were asking us to do a licensing model. We kept, I kept having the same attitude, which was like, yeah, we'll let you know when we get to our, your town. Finally, we got to desperation mode. We're like, okay, some, the business model's not working. We've got to change. We can't, we, we're not figuring it out. So we said, well, wait a minute. All these people are asking us to do the SaaS model. Screw it, let's try it. And I went, you know, back in 2014, <laughs> these guys that came up to me, and they were pretty hot. And I freaking called them in January. And I said, hey, this is Sunny. Remember me, like, about 20 months ago, you met me in New York? And the guy's like, yeah, I remember you. I go, are you still interested in that? Things are going great over here. We're killing it. <laughs> and he was like, fuck yeah. Oh, uh, we do a lot of lying as founders. <laughs> and so he's like. Alternate facts. Alternate facts. 
that we faced in terms of getting traction? In terms of getting traction, in terms of scaling up, right? You oh, said, oh. You said that the reason you decided to sell was because you think you get more funding and get higher traction yeah. versus sell. Yeah. So what, how do you make that decision? Uh, is that because you needed more feet on the ground and more investors to sign up and that was more expensive or? Yeah. Um, I think I understand your question. Uh, you know, I think on a really truly honest level, you know, I'm joking around when I say earlier, you know, we as founders lie to each other a lot, right? And, you know, God bless my buddy Jeff here who worked for me for a year for no pay um, because of a lot of, like, you know, and when I say lie, what I mean is the dreams, right? We're trying to do something. We're trying to build something. We're trying to solve a problem. So we keep telling ourselves we're, you know, in two weeks we're going to solve this problem. In two weeks this is going to happen, right? Um, but I think at some point you have to stop and really think about two things. One is real traction. Like, are people really using your product? Whether it's a restaurant like Red Rabbit, like, do people really come in? Do they really come in? Do they really spend money there for real? Not just my four hip friends or whatever, right? Do real people use your product? Like in other words, do you actually have traction and growth? Not what a spreadsheet says, but real growth. And the other one that is tough to quantify, but you know it when you see it, is what I call brand love. So I've seen it like three times in my career. And brand love is brand love. So brand love is a trip. It's it's a weird thing, and you know it when you see it. And it was weird. Requested didn't have it. Requested on paper was fucking amazing. Beautiful interface, killer utility, killer idea. You know the highest level elite investors in Silicon Valley. Uh, you know, cool. Re I mean, just a cool story. But like, no one really loved it. Yeah, no one really loved our company. I mean. You have to sometimes look at that and go, like, people don't really love us. And and that was another factor. I'm like, I don't know what it is, and I don't know how you capture that. And I've done it, like, three times. One, I mean, two times myself and one now later. Like, my, my Snowboard Magazine heckler had, like, amazing brand love. Red Rabbit's crazy. Like, people have Red Rabbit tattoos, like, real tattoos on their arms. <laughs> and I don't encourage that, by the way. Like, these people love this place. And it's just, it's nothing we did, it's just this brand love. 
And waiters the same way has this psycho, psycho brand love. Like people fucking love this company. And you see in other companies too, like Zappos, you know, and, and, and so on, right? People yeah. love these certain companies, Super. right? So that was a really big factor for me was facing the reality, you know, the harsh reality is that, you know, the Stockdale paradox, you know, if you're going to that, you face the Stockdale paradox of the harsh reality of what is real. And that was a big factor for, for wanting to go that direction. So we're at 7 o'clock. I want to respect your time. Um, do you want to go more, or do you want to just call it the last if question? If you guys are cool to hang out, you know, wifey gave me a pass. So <laughs> I'm, I'm good, man. Yeah. I have a question. Um, how many people are going That's a great question. So his question, I don't know if you guys can't hear it, but his question is, when is the right time to get investors to invest in your business? And he's giving a low, your own personal story, which is an e-commerce platform? Yes, yes. Well, <laughs> my answer to that is right now and as much as you can get. That's my answer. Um, but each individual founder has to discover that for themselves. I've learned and I hang out with a lot of different founders I mean lots and the thing I see is we as founders tend to overvalue our companies and undervalue the raise and that's a healthy healthy you know tandem right because ventures want to undervalue the company and overvalue the raise so they get more peace and that's that's the natural natural symbiosis of it all right but the thing about a venture is they go on and go to Los Altos and hang out and do a bike ride. We as founders, <laughs> when we run out of money, it's fucking over for our company and our dream, right? So what I've discovered is you're going to burn way more money than you think, and that way more than you think, you're actually going to burn more than that. You're gonna, it's going to take so much money, especially in the space that we're doing, you know? Um, and the other thing is, if you're actually building value, if you're truly building value, there's plenty of pie to go around. The problem with us as founders is we think, oh my God, dude, I can't sell this thing at a 2.5 million pre because this thing is gonna be worth a billion dollars. And if I give away 17 more percent now, I'm gonna be fucking losing 900 million dollars, fuck! <laughs> and your company isn't worth shit. <laughs> it isn't worth shit. And, and here's a guy going, I want to write you a check for $500,000 and you won't take it. And it happens. And look, I'm the first guy to raise a hand. It happens all the time. So, of course, there's a whole bunch of details in there about terms and who you're raising from and all those things. I mean, that's, that's the deeper side of it. You know, who, you, who you raise from, the terms on that raise, um, you know, use of proceeds, uh, the value that investors bring beyond the capital. All those stuff go without saying but to your exact question, the answer is right now, as much as you can get. At least that's the question. Sorry? Questions? Oh, wait. Oh, 
question? Oh, go ahead. Simple question. Uh, what, what's Waiter's mission statement? Like uh, that, you guys compromised on, and this is your true north. Uh, you know, we don't really have one. <laughs> uh, I think if I had to take a gander at it, it's hospitality. One word: hospitality. Is there a um, restaurant network in Midtown? Or uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. There is. There's two. One is the Midtown Business Association, which we talked about earlier. Really great group of people that are more involved with policy and stuff like that. And the other one is right here in Midtown. The restaurant industry people. And it's Midtown, the first one is Midtown what? Business Association. That's that's the de facto formation of our neighborhood thing that you know takes care of security and lights okay. and all that kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, but the other one is just be a part of the industry. You know, um, everybody who runs the industry in this town, especially Midtown, uh -huh. are people like me who were born here and grew up here. And, you know, yeah, yeah. So just walking, you know, Josh Milhome, who runs this bar here, is a native. He's been in this industry for 30 years. So you should just go to Josh and say, Hey, Josh, I want to meet you and I want to meet more people in this industry. That's the best. Network. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh. Actually, I moved. Oh, there you go. Hey. <laughs> Just to break you. Yeah. So, well done. So, yeah. There's so a couple of questions, actually, on, on what you were saying earlier. One was who you raise money from, right? Yeah. So, um, so, I know you talked about Jason, you know, cool guy and stuff. And how do you kind of evaluate that chemistry between, um, between yourself, what you're trying to do, and, you know, who you're raising money from? Because there are also a lot of D-bags in the... You know, yeah. sure. one, right? Yeah. Um, and I think the second question Bob, is, um, you know, you have, you know, you, you bootstrapped a, you know, a lot in the initial stages, um, and um, um, I know there's this one uh, really good quote from Eric Ries who says, uh, start, successful startups are those that, um, you know, finish all their experimentation before they run out of resources. Right, so so you it is an experimentation. You bootstrap, but while you're doing that, obviously, as you raise capital, you're now, you know, you're making those mistakes at a higher burn rate. Yeah. Versus when you boot, bootstrap, you're making those mistakes at a lower rate. So I've always struggled with when do you stop bootstrapping and raising money? Yeah. When is it the right time? So. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, well, the first thing is your your first question was who do you raise money from, and how do you know the chemistry and all that kind of stuff? Well, I mean, that's something that you have to temperature check each milestone, each level of raise, right? So you're gonna go friends and family, to a seed round, to maybe a super seed, seed plus, A, double A, you know, it's gonna keep growing, right? And the best thing to do is have good people around you like your, you know, your co-founders, your advisory board, who vet the people who want to invest in you, and have long conversations with them. What do they expect? What do you expect? How do you work? What are you looking to do? How active? How passive? And it works both ways. Sometimes founders want investors to be more active than they want to be. It doesn't just work the other way. Where you know, most founders get scared. Oh, he's going to tell me how to run my business. Well, you should be so lucky. Most investors don't fucking have time for you, right? So establishing those things as you're going through the race, and then it's a gut check, right? I mean, it's a gut check. 
And beyond that, the next thing you can do is just set rules. You know, we do it this way, or we have a board, and the board does it this way, or whatever. So setting rules out is one way to, to manage all that stuff. Um, to, your, to your Eric Reese quote, I mean, all he's really good at backing up his basic general <laughs> premise, which is about moving fast, right? So when you say, you know, um, do, oh, thanks, brother. When you say, uh, test out your hypotheses and prove them or disprove them before you run out of resources, all that means is move really fast and be a good steward of your cash. That's what he's saying, right? It's, I don't know, I've never heard of a company doing that. Maybe Snapchat, I don't know. But even Snapchat, they keep raising, right? Because they haven't still haven't done it. I don't think that exists. I think that's just Silicon Valley fableness. It's a good idea that basically says, keep moving fast. If something doesn't work, there's a book right now called It Only Has to Work. It's like about baseball. It's pretty cool. And if, if you can kind of live that way, like we as founders get caught up in this intellectual world of like, but no, dude, people don't understand. This is going to be amazing. Going to be amazing. But if it doesn't work, you know it doesn't work, right? If, if the machine isn't working. I think that's what that means. And I don't know. I, I, I think I – think, Moving fast and testing things a lot is really critical. So you would rather go raise a bunch of money and experiment fast and fail big versus bootstrap and Well, I'd rather not fail big. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, I think... <laughs> like, win big and fail big versus... Yeah, like, yeah. Like, because bootstrap just hinges you, right? I mean, look, with requested, dude, you know, I quit my job and lived for eight months without a dime, okay? So I, re I bootstrapped it you know, before I raised a dime. And then I raised a friends and family round of $270,000, which is nothing, you know, to support three software engineers. That's like one guy's salary for a year, right? So I, I Pied Piper a dream to three software engineers to follow me for 270 grand. So no, I mean, it's a genesis, right? You should certainly be working on the problem that you want to work on and build something, do something. You know, and at least try to prove something before you raise capital. But if there's, you know, a capital source who's willing to let bet on you, fucking go for it. I mean, as long as it's a, you know, a big, big person, an adult who's ready to lose money. Uh, <laughs> yeah. All right, let's go with, we're, we're getting that attrition rate that's getting pretty high here. So let's do one last question from, a, from somebody who hasn't asked one yet. Anybody who hasn't asked a question yet? Want a question? Or any question. Or any question. Okay, one last question, and then I'll close it out. You guys got to run? Does everybody have to run? And, and, and maybe if you want to stick around with him after we're going to hang for a few. Right. Keep it going. So this I've got fun. a question after you. I'm glad it's in the bar. This okay. is cool. So, obviously. So, when you were launching the MVP for requested, or just even launching the product, what kind of important milestones did you set up to reach to kind of decide to get this is a great question. So <laughs> I have, okay, so when we were doing the prototype and doing it in our bedroom type of thing, it was just kind of like, can we build screens? Can we build a prototype? Quit our jobs, we were screwing around. And then when we finally raised a little bit of money, we did the same, we did a retreat, which was really cool. And we went to Oakland. We went to a co-working space in Oakland called, what was the name of that place? The Port. Really cool space. Down in Jackline Square. 
We rented a room, and we were like, oh my God, we're doing a retreat for our company. It's the best feeling ever, by the way. You're like, you know, we got a little bit of money. We're at a retreat, and no one can tell us to like be, we're not like hustling our freelance clients and our jobs and going, oh yeah, I'll be in in a minute, I'll deliver, you know. We're there for our company with pure focus. And we're going through all these really cool like questions about ourselves and about the company and just, just stuff you would do as a startup, right? We did that, we sent Miles, says, I have a photo of that somewhere. If you want it, I'll send it to you. It's pretty interesting. Anyway, we did that retreat on August 6th of 2014. Is it really? Happy birthday. And uh, <laughs> I gave you some milestones for your <laughs> So we did this retreat on August 6th, and we had set these milestones. Oh, the first thing we did was we established roles. When you're a little startup, right? Everyone's kind of doing whatever, and we're like, okay, now we have money. What are you going to do? All right, you're, you're the front end developer, okay? All right, you're the sales guy, all right? You're the back end developer, okay? You're, you know, whatever. So we kind of established everyone's roles. And we went, okay, well, what do we need to do? Because remember, we hadn't shipped our second prototype to App Store yet. So we made this milestone list, and it was basically all based around two things. Building a product, getting customers. Building product and what? Getting customers. So building a product, getting customers. We missed all the milestones, <laughs> but not by far. But you kept going. We just missed them. It's pretty normal. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it was it was really like you know, get these screens done at this date. You know, do testing at this date. Ship iOS this date. Android this date. Get thirty restaurants signed up at this date. You know, it was like blunt milestones. It's basically around building a product and getting the customers. Um, we didn't hit them on time, but we did hit them. So the key to your question is that it's really, 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 really important to set milestones. And even as small as you are, you cannot accomplish things without setting real milestones and getting it done. And holding each other accountable, too. It's really critical. Really, really critical. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You'll stick around a little bit afterwards. A yeah. um, couple of last wrap-ups. Um, one question I have for you. Okay. You are a Sacramento native. Yes. Several startups here. Yes. What do you think the Sacramento startup community needs to help grow, help founders and entrepreneurs here more than we are doing now? Anything come to mind? <laughs> Brandon, you hear that question? No. Is that <laughs> so the question is, what do we need here in Sacramento to help startup founders and entrepreneurs be more successful? Yeah, but I know you're going to say, I know. Oh, so I know. No, 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 no. I'm going to answer. I'm going to answer. I'm going to answer. I just want to make sure he heard the question. Because uh, it's something we, we talk about all the time and for years and together and apart. Um, you know, on one hand, we don't need anything. We just need things like this, like, you know, founders to build cool products. I mean, at its basic level, we could talk about getting more money having you know, real ventures from the valley come here, building co-working spaces, and all these things we can talk about. Those are all excuses. All it takes is founders, like y'all, building a product. Most of them will fail. That's okay, but like, this dude I met at Hacker Lab, do you do the dating thing? Yeah, so I met this guy over here at Hacker Lab. What's your name again? Adam Bush. 
Adam, who's like doing this company that basically is dating suggestions on a weekly basis. And he was like, I want to do this app and a website and all that. I'm like, no, no, no. And he's like, it's just an email. I'm like, do the email. And I get it every week. I read it every week. Awesome. I know you do. It's really cool. Now I'm unsubscribing. But he's in Louisiana. <laughs> but it's cool. It's like, where, you know, where's that company going to go? Well, that's up to the founder. Yeah. Like, that's all we need. Now, with that said, it's really awesome to see, in all sincerity, people like Brandon doing leveling up on things he's built from a little tiny place in Midtown that was, you know, a scrappy little spot to now what could be this cool global, globally visible entity, right, to... Um, some of the larger corporates getting involved in, in all that kind of stuff and really, you know, helping support founders and support companies here in town or, or, or organizations in town. And what company is that? IO Labs. Talk to Brandon after. And so, you know, and, and so on and so on. We don't need the things that people think we need. What we need is founders to build great companies and great products and people will support those companies. That's 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 it. So thanks again Sonny. Thanks again Golden Bear. Josh isn't around here anywhere. Um, thank you all for coming out. Um, how many uh, like this kind of events where you guess these guys stuff? Yeah? All right, cool. So you plan like it. <laughs> <laughs> the plan, yeah. How many thumbs up? But this is this Unlike the Hollywood. So the plan is to do this. I'd rather be in a Hyatt banquet room. Sorry, The plan is to do this once a month, probably the last week of the month. Stay tuned to startupsack.com for the next one. We're figuring this out as we go, so. Based on the response yep. here, I think we'll do it again. Awesome. Um, so um, drop us a comment on startupsec.com if you have ideas for how to improve it, for venue ideas, or for future guests you'd like to see uh, who are like yep. startup founders who, who, who are veterans and have success. And if any of you want to get a hold of me ever, just Google me, Sonny Mayuba, or ask around. I'm easily accessible. I'm happy to hang with anyone. Are you part of this meetup group? I think so. Probably, I don't know. Um, the the Laura and Jeff know how to get a hold of me. And then also I have a card if you want to hang out after. And also I have an ask of you guys. And Waiter is launching in Sacramento on January 23rd. Sorry, February. That's <laughs> <laughs> next year. A milestone. In one year. I want you guys to remember me. February 23rd. So it's like three weeks, roughly. Probably three weeks. Thank you very much. We got another install. Thank you, brother. So all I ask of you guys is just use it two times. Okay? Just use it a couple times. So we launched on the 23rd. By the way, it's freaking amazing when you're at home and you're jamming so you get food delivered. What's the promo? Oh, no. 
requested it, I was like 40 grand out. <laughs> but no, check it out. And it's all like all independent restaurants here in Sacramento. As you all know, I've been dedicated to that industry since like 1984. Love the restaurant industry. And so we're supporting really cool restaurants. And it's another tech company. We do have an office here and in Rose. We're live in Roseville now. It's going really well. But um, we're launching SAC. So I want to make SAC have a really awesome uh, launch. And we're also throwing a party in March. It's going to be free. It'll be really fun. So we should combine. I'm going to get details to you and email everybody. But it's going to be free. It's going to be fun. And we'll get, maybe we can do some sort of like, you know, combination. And that'll just be a party. That's not like a download to get in or anything. Just a party. So all I ask of you guys is try the app a couple times. Okay. Cool. Right. And thank you guys for coming too. I'm super humbled and honored that so many people came out. Thank you. Thanks again, Sonny. I appreciate it. All right, good night. Thanks for coming and feel free to stick around as long as yeah. you want to and yeah. drive safe. Yeah. Thank you everybody. Yeah.